This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by George Pilling. StorySales.com Book 13. Containing the Space of Twelve Days. Chapter 1. An Invocation. Come, bright love of fame, inspire my glowing breast. Not thee I will call, who, over swelling tides of blood and tears, dost bear the hero unto glory, while sighs of millions waft his spreading sails. But thee, fair, gentle maid, whom Nessus, happy nymph, first on the banks of Hebrus did produce. Thee, whom Maonia educated, whom Mantua charmed, and who, on that fair hill which overlooks the proud metropolis of Britain, satst, with thy Milton, sweetly tuning the heroic lyre. Fill my ravished fancy with the hopes of charming ages yet to come. Foretell me that some tender maid, whose grandmother is yet unborn, hereafter, when under the fictitious name of Sophia, she reads the real worth which once existed in my Charlotte, shall from her sympathetic breast send forth the heaving sigh. Do not teach me only to foresee, but to enjoy, nay even to feed on future praise. Comfort me by a solemn assurance that when the little parlour in which I sit in this instant shall be reduced to a worse furnished box, I shall be read with honour by those who never knew nor saw me, and whom I shall neither know nor see. And thou, much plumper dame, whom no airy forms nor phantoms of imagination clothe, whom the well-seasoned beef and pudding richly stained with plums delight, thee, I call, of whom in a trickshoot, in some Dutch canal, the fat Ufrau Gelt, impregnated by a jolly merchant of Amsterdam, was delivered, in Grub Street School didst thou suck the elements of thy erudition, here hast thou, in thy maturer age, taught poetry to tickle not the fancy, but the pride of the patron, Comedy from thee learns a grave and solemn air, while tragedy storms aloud, and rends the affrighted theatres with its thunders. To soothe thy wearied limbs in slumber, alderman history tells his tedious tale, and again to awaken thee, Michel Romance performs his surprising tricks of dexterity. Nor less thy well-fed bookseller obeys thy influence. By thy advice the heavy, unread folio lump, which long had dozed on the dusty shelf, piecemealed into numbers, runs nimbly through the nation. Instructed by thee, some books, like quacks, impose on the world by promising wonders, while others turn bows and trust all their merit to a gilded outside. Come, thou jolly substance with thy shining face, keep back thy inspiration, but hold forth thy tempting rewards, thy shining, chinking heap, thy quickly convertible bank bill, big with unseen riches, thy often varying stock, the warm, the comfortable house, and lastly, a fair portion of that bounteous mother, whose flowing breasts yield the redundant sustenance for all her numerous offspring, did not some too greedily and wantonly drive their brethren from the teat. Come thou, and if I am too tasteless of thy valuable treasures, warm my heart with the transporting thought of conveying them to others. Tell me, that through thy bounty, the prattling babes, whose innocent play has often been interrupted by my labors, may one time be amply rewarded for them. And now this ill-yoked pair, this lean shadow and this fat substance, have prompted me to write, whose assistance shall I invoke to direct my pen? First, 
genius thou gift of heaven without whose aid in vain we struggle against the stream of nature thou who dost sow the generous seeds which art nourishes and brings to perfection do thou kindly take me by the hand and lead me through all the mazes the winding labyrinths of nature initiate me into all those mysteries which profane eyes never beheld teach me which to see is no difficult task to know mankind better than they know themselves remove that mist which dims the intellect of mortals and causes them to adore men for their art or to detest them for their cunning in deceiving others while they are in reality the objects only of ridicule for deceiving themselves strip off the thin disguise of wisdom from self-conceit of plenty from avarice and of glory from ambition come thou hast inspired thy aristophanes thy lucian thy cervantes thy rabelais thy moliere thy shakespeare thy swift thy marivaux fill my pages with humour till mankind learn the good nature to laugh only at the follies of others and the humility to grieve at their own and thou almost the constant attendant on true genius humanity bring all thy tender sensations if thou hast already disposed of them all between thy allen and thy littleton steal them a little while from their bosoms not without these the tender scene is painted from these alone proceed the noble disinterested friendship the melting love the generous sentiment the ardent gratitude the soft compassion the candid opinion and all those strong energies of a good mind which fill the moistened eyes with tears the glowing cheeks with blood and swell the heart with tides of grief joy and benevolence and thou o learning for without thy assistance nothing pure nothing correct can genius produce do guide my pen thee in thy favourite fields where the limpid gently rolling thames washes thy etonian banks in early youth i have worshipped to thee at thy birchen altar with true spartan devotion i have sacrificed my blood come then and from thy vast luxuriant stores in long antiquity piled up open thy maonian and thy mantuan coffers with whatever else includes thy philosophic thy poetic and thy historical treasures whether with greek or roman characters thou hast chosen to inscribe the ponderous chests give me a while that key to all thy treasures which to thy warburton thou hast entrusted lastly come experience long conversant with the wise the good the learned and the polite not with them only but with every kind of character from the minister at his levee to the bailiff in his sponging house from the duchess at her drum to the landlady behind her bar from thee only can the manners of mankind be known to which the recluse pedant however great his parts or extensive his learning may be hath ever been a stranger come all these and more if possible for arduous is the task i have undertaken and without all your assistance will i find be too heavy for me to support but if you all smile on my labours i hope still to bring them to a happy conclusion End of chapter 1 Chapter 2 What Befell Mr. Jones on His Arrival in London The learned Dr. Masaubin used to say that the proper direction to him was to Dr. Masaubin in the world, intimating that there were few people in it to whom his great reputation was not known and perhaps upon a very nice examination into the matter we shall find that this circumstance bears no inconsiderable part among the many blessings of grandeur the great happiness of being known to posterity 
with the hopes of which we so delighted ourselves in the preceding chapter, is the portion of few. To have the several elements which compose our names, as Sydenham expresses it, repeated a thousand years hence, is a gift beyond the power of title and wealth, and is scarce to be purchased, unless by the sword and the pen. But to avoid the scandalous imputation, while we yet live, of being one whom nobody knows, a scandal, by the by, as old as the days of Homer, will always be the envied portion of those who have a legal title either to honour or estate. From that figure, therefore, which the Irish peer who brought Sophia to town hath already made in this history, the reader will conclude, doubtless, it must have been an easy matter to have discovered his house in London without knowing the particular street or square which he inhabited, since he must have been one whom everybody knows. To say the truth, so it would have been to any of those tradesmen who are accustomed to attend the regions of the great, for the doors of the great are generally no less easy to find than it is difficult to get entrance into them. But Jones, as well as Partridge, was an entire stranger in London, and as he happened to arrive first in a quarter of the town, the inhabitants of which have very little intercourse with the householders of Hanover or Grosvenor Square, for he entered through Gray's Inn Lane, so he rambled about some time before he could even find his way to those happy mansions where fortune segregates from the vulgar those magnanimous heroes, the descendants of ancient Britons, Saxons, or Danes, whose ancestors, being born in better days by sundry kinds of merit, have entailed riches and honor on their posterity. Jones, being at length arrived at those terrestrial Elysian fields, would now soon have discovered his lordship's mansion, but the peer unluckily quitted his former house when he went for Ireland, and as he was just entered into a new one, the fame of his equipage had not yet sufficiently blazed in the neighborhood, so that, after a successless inquiry until the clock had struck eleven, Jones at last yielded to the advice of Partridge, and retreated to the Bullen Gate in Holborn, that being the inn where he had first alighted, and where he retired to enjoy that kind of repose which usually attends persons in his circumstances. Early in the morning, he again set forth in pursuit of Sophia, and many a weary step he took to no better purpose than before. At last, whether it was that fortune relented, or whether it was no longer in her power to disappoint him, he came into the very street which was honoured by his lordship's residence, and being directed to the house, he gave one gentle rap at the door. The porter, who, from the modesty of the knock, had conceived no high idea of the person approaching, conceived but little better from the appearance of Mr. Jones, who was dressed in a suit of fustian, and had by his side the weapon formerly purchased of the sergeant, of which, though the blade might be composed of well-tempered steel, the handle was composed only of brass, and that none of the brightest. When Jones, therefore, inquired after the young lady who had come to town with his lordship, this fellow answered, that there were no ladies there. Jones then desired to see the master of the house, but was informed that his lordship would see nobody that morning, and upon growing more pressing the porter said, he had positive orders to let no person in, but if you think proper, said he, to leave your name, I will acquaint his lordship, and if you call another time you shall know when he will see you. Jones now declared that he had a very particular business with the young lady and could not depart without seeing her upon which the porter, with no very agreeable voice or aspect, affirmed that there was no young lady in that house, and consequently none could he see, adding, Sure you are the strangest man I ever met with, for you will not take an answer. I have often thought that, 
by the particular description of Cerberus, the porter of hell, in the sixth Aeneid, Virgil might possibly intend to satirize the porters of the great men in his time. The picture, at least, resembles those who have the honor to attend at the doors of our great men. The porter in his lodge answers exactly to Cerberus in his den, and, like him, must be appeased by a sop before access can be gained to his master. Perhaps Jones might have seen him in that light, and have recollected the passage where the Sibyl, in order to procure an entrance for Aeneas, presents a keeper of the Stygian Avenue with such a sop. Jones, in like manner, now began to offer a bribe to the human Cerberus, which a footman, overhearing, instantly advanced and declared, If Mr. Jones would give him the sum proposed, he would conduct him to the lady. Jones instantly agreed, and was forthwith conducted to the lodging of Mrs. Fitzpatrick, by the very fellow who had attended the ladies thither the day before. Nothing more aggravates ill success than the near approach to good. The gamester, who loses his party at a piquet by a single point, laments his bad luck ten times as much as he who never came within a prospect of the game. So in a lottery, the proprietors of the next numbers to that which wins the great prize are apt to account themselves much more unfortunate than their fellow sufferers. In short, these kind of hairbreadth missings of happiness look like the insults of fortune, who may be considered as thus playing tricks with us, and wantonly diverting herself at our expense. Jones, who more than once already had experienced this frolicsome disposition of the heathen goddess, was now again doomed to be tantalized in the like manner, for he arrived at the door of Mrs. Fitzpatrick about ten minutes after the departure of Sophia. He now addressed himself to the waiting woman belonging to Mrs. Fitzpatrick, who told him the disagreeable news that the lady was gone, but could not tell him whither, and the same answer he afterwards received from Mrs. Fitzpatrick herself. For as that lady made no doubt but that Mr. Jones was a person detached from her uncle Western, in pursuit of his daughter, so she was too generous to betray her. Though Jones had never seen Mrs. Fitzpatrick, yet he had heard that a cousin of Sophia was married to a gentleman of that name. This, however, in the present tumult of his mind, never once recurred to his memory, but when the footman who had conducted him from his lordships acquainted him with a great intimacy between the ladies, and with their calling each other cousin, he then recollected the story of the marriage which he had formerly heard, and as he was presently convinced that this was the same woman, he became more surprised at the answer which he had received, and very earnestly desired leave to wait on the lady herself. But she has positively refused him that honour. Jones, who, though he had never seen a court, was better bred than most who frequent it, was incapable of any rude or abrupt behaviour to a lady. When he had received, therefore, a peremptory denial, he retired for the presence, saying to the waiting woman, that if this was an improper hour to wait on her lady, he would return in the afternoon, and that he then hoped to have the honour of seeing her. The civility with which he uttered this, added to the great comeliness of his person, made an impression on the waiting woman, and she could not help answering, Perhaps, sir, you may. And indeed, she afterwards said everything to her mistress which she thought most likely to prevail on her to admit a visit from the handsome young gentleman, for so she called him. Jones very shrewdly suspected that Sophia herself was now with her cousin, and was denied to him, which he imputed to her resentment of what had happened at Upton. Having, therefore, dispatched Partridge to procure him lodgings, he remained all day in the street, watching the door where he thought his angel lay concealed, but no person did he see issue forth, except a servant of the house, 
and in the evening he returned to pay his visit to Mrs. Fitzpatrick, which that good lady at last condescended to admit. There is a certain air of natural gentility, which it is neither in the power of dress to give, nor to conceal. Mr. Jones, as hath before been hinted, was possessed of this in a very eminent degree. He met, therefore, with a reception from the lady somewhat different from what his apparel seemed to demand, and after he had paid her his proper respects, was desired to sit down. The reader will not, I believe, be desirous of knowing all the particulars of this conversation, which ended very little to the satisfaction of poor Jones. For though Mrs. Fitzpatrick soon discovered the lover, as all women have the eyes of hawks in those matters, yet she still thought it was such a lover as a generous friend of the lady should not betray her to. In short, she suspected this was the very Mr. Bliffle, from whom Sophia had flown, and all the answers which she artfully drew from Jones concerning Mr. Allworthy's family confirmed her in this opinion. She therefore strictly denied any knowledge concerning the place whither Sophia was gone, nor could Jones obtain more than a permission to wait on her again the next evening. When Jones was departed, Mrs. Fitzpatrick communicated her suspicion concerning Mr. Bliffle to her maid, who answered, "'Sure, madam, he is too pretty a man, in my opinion, for any woman in the world to run away from. I'd rather fancy it is Mr. Jones.' "'Mr. Jones?' said the lady. "'What Jones?' for Sophia had not given the least hint of any such person in all their conversation, but Mrs. Honor had been much more communicative, and had acquainted her sister Abigail with the whole history of Jones, which this now again related to her mistress. Mrs. Fitzpatrick no sooner received this information than she immediately agreed with the opinion of her maid, and, what is very unaccountable, saw charms in the gallant, happy lover, which she had overlooked in the slighted squire. "'Betty,' says she, you are certainly in the right. He is a very pretty fellow, and I don't wonder that my cousin's maid should tell you so many women are fond of him. I am sorry now I did not inform him where my cousin was, and yet, if he be so terrible a rake as you tell me, it is a pity she should ever see him any more, for what but her ruin can happen from marrying such a rake and a beggar against her father's consent? I protest, if he be such a man as the wench described him to you, it is but an office of charity to keep her from him, and I am sure it would be unpardonable in me to do otherwise, who have tasted so bitterly of the misfortunes attending such marriages. Here she was interrupted by the arrival of a visitor, which was no other than his lordship, and as nothing passed at this visit either new or extraordinary, or anyways material to this history, we shall here put an end to this chapter. End of chapter 2 Chapter 3. A Project of Mrs. Fitzpatrick and Her Visit to Lady Bellaston When Mrs. Fitzpatrick retired to rest, her thoughts were entirely taken up by her cousin Sophia and Mr. Jones. She was, indeed, a little offended with the former, for the disingenuity which she now discovered, in which meditation she had not long exercised her imagination before the following conceit suggested itself that, could she possibly become the means of preserving Sophia from this man, and of restoring her to her father, she should, in all human probability, by so great a service to the family, reconcile to herself both her uncle and her Aunt Western. As this was one of her most favorite wishes, so the hope of success seemed so reasonable, that nothing remained but to consider of proper methods to accomplish her scheme. To attempt to reason the case with Sophia did not appear to her one of those methods, 
for as betty had reported from mrs honour that sophia had a violent inclination to jones she conceived that to dissuade her from the match was an endeavour of the same kind as it would be very heartily and earnestly to entreat a moth not to fly into a candle if the reader will please to remember that the acquaintance which sophia had with lady bellaston was contracted at the house of mrs western and must have grown at the very time when mrs fitzpatrick lived with this latter lady he will want no information that mrs fitzpatrick must have been acquainted with her likewise they were besides both equally her distant relations after much consideration therefore she resolved to go early in the morning to that lady and endeavour to see her unknown to sophia and to acquaint her with the whole affair for she did not in the least doubt but that the prudent lady who had often ridiculed romantic love and indiscreet marriages in her conversation would very readily concur in her sentiments concerning this match and would lend her utmost assistance to prevent it this resolution she accordingly executed and the next morning before the sun she huddled on her clothes and at a very unfashionable unreasonable unvisitable hour went to lady bellaston to whom she got access without the least knowledge or suspicion of sophia who though not asleep lay at that time awake in her bed with honour snoring by her side mrs fitzpatrick made many apologies for an early abrupt visit and an hour when she said she should not have thought of disturbing her ladyship but upon business of the utmost consequence she then opened the whole affair told all she had heard from betty and did not forget the visit which jones had paid to herself the preceding evening lady bellaston answered with a smile then you have seen this terrible man madam pray is he so very fine a figure as he is represented for etoff entertained me last night almost two hours with him the wench i believe is in love with him by reputation here the reader will be apt to wonder but the truth is that mrs etoff who had the honour to pin and unpin the lady bellaston had received complete information regarding the said mr jones and had faithfully conveyed the same to her lady last night or rather that morning while she was undressing on which account she had been detained in her office above the space of an hour and a half the lady indeed though generally well enough pleased with the narratives of mrs etoff at those seasons gave an extraordinary attention to her account of jones for honour had described him as a very handsome fellow and mrs etoff in her hurry added so much to the beauty of his person to her report that lady bellaston began to conceive him to be a kind of miracle in nature the curiosity which her woman had inspired was now greatly increased by mrs fitzpatrick who spoke as much in favour of the person of jones as she had before spoken in dispraise of his birth character and fortune when lady bellaston had heard the whole she answered gravely indeed madam this is a matter of great consequence nothing can certainly be more commendable than the part you act and i shall be very glad to have my share in the preservation of a young lady of so much merit and for whom i have so much esteem doth not your ladyship think says mrs fitzpatrick eagerly that it would be the best way to write immediately to my uncle and acquaint him where my cousin is the lady pondered a little upon this and answered why no madam i think not thy western hath described her brother to me to be such a brute that i cannot consent to put any woman under his power who hath escaped from it i have heard he behaved like a monster to his own wife for he is one of those wretches who think they have the right to tyrannize over us and from such i shall ever esteem it the cause of my sex to rescue any woman who is so unfortunate to be under their power the business dear cousin will be only to keep miss western from seeing this young fellow till the good company which you will have an opportunity of meeting here give her a proper turn 
If he should find her out, madam, answered the other, your ladyship may be assured he will leave nothing unattempted to come at her. But, madam, replied the lady, it is impossible he should come here, though indeed it is possible he may get some intelligence where she is, and they may lurk about the house. I wish, therefore, I knew his person. Is there no way, madam, by which I could have a sight of him? For otherwise, you know, cousin, she may contrive to see him here without my knowledge. Mrs. Fitzpatrick answered, that he hath threatened her with another visit that afternoon, and that, if her ladyship pleased to do her the honour of calling upon her then, she would hardly fail of seeing him between six and seven, and if he came earlier she would, by some means or other, detain him till her ladyship's arrival. Lady Bellaston replied, She would come the moment she could get from dinner, which she supposed would be by seven at farthest, for that it was absolutely necessary she should be acquainted with his person. Upon my word, madam, says she, it was very good to take this care of Miss Western, but common humanity, as well as regard to our family, requires it of us both, for it would be a dreadful match indeed. Mrs. Fitzpatrick failed not to make a proper return to the compliment which Lady Bellaston had bestowed on her cousin, and after some little immaterial conversation, withdrew, and getting as fast as she could into her chair, unseen by Sophia or Honor, returned home. End of chapter 3